morning. Thank you, Melissa, for um, music. I want to thank the young people for helping out. We had Ethan and Matthew up here, and then uh, the three Tansy kids, uh, Dominic, Alexander, and Katerina. Thank you guys for helping out. It's been good to see you up here. Good to see everybody here. Happy Memorial Day weekend. I guess I wasn't supposed to say that, was I? Uh, hard to break old habits. Um, so the events that I'm about to talk to you about happened uh, between March 1977 and December of 1978. That's about a year and nine months. Uh, for those of you that are counting, that was 41 to 42 years ago. So I'm dating myself a little bit. Uh, that's okay, though. Um, so to get us kind of in the uh, essence of what the late 1970s were, I have some slides here I'd like to show you. So let's see if we can get these fired up here. <clears throat> There we go. So back, those of you who were back, who were there back then, uh, Carter was president, Mondale was the vice president, so we see them with their wives here. Um, 1977, I think that was. Uh, well, we, if you guys can, this way? Okay. Huh? Oh, I'm pointing it the wrong way. <laughs> Did I, did I miss something here? Anyway, uh, Indira Gandhi, she was actually temporarily uh, leaving office. She was the Prime Minister of India. Those of you who remember history, um, why don't you guys go ahead and advance it? <laughs> yeah, Leonid Brezhnev, you remember? He uh, just took over as uh, president of the uh, Soviet Union. He had been president of Russia, and he kind of consolidated his power in 1977. Those of us remember him. Elton John, how, about he, how many of you remember him? He was out um, doing his thing back then. He was a very uh, colorful character uh, back in those days. The Bee Gees were uh, singing uh, Night Fever and uh, a number of other things. Disco was in back then. Uh, Elvis Presley died in 1977. He was 42 years old. Um, ABBA, I don't know if you guys remember them. They were a popular group back then. Uh, football fans, how many of you remember Walter Payton? All right, sweetness. Yeah, he had his best year in 1977 in terms of rushing yards, 1,852. So that goes back a ways, but he pretty much carried the Bears back then. Uh, Lily Tomlin, you guys remember her, New Comedy of Queen. Next one. Uh, Laverne and Shirley, you guys remember them? Okay. Uh, Three's Company came out around that time. All right, Charlie's Angels, how about that, guys? Remember them? Uh, chips, ladies, you remember them? <laughs> we have one for the ladies, one for the guys. And, um, uh, oh, what's her name? Uh, uh, Marie Osmond, thank you. Marie Osmond was hawking products even back then. Here she was selling uh, skin, now she's doing Weight Watchers thing, I think. Uh, these are one of the kids, I'll talk about some of the schools I was at. And this is one of the kids at, um, I forgot which school it was, I think that may have been Bass or Ozark. Next one, here's another picture of another one of the kids. So, got to know them. He's holding a book in his hand there, it's a, a bird book. They were in a bird watching and I remember they gave me uh, that book when I uh, left school. So, became friends with a number of the kids. This is not, <laughs> uh, in that setting, this is a camp I worked at that summer of 1978. See me over here, the second from the left on the couch. Uh, my hair's a little darker, and there's about 40 pounds less of me there. Um, 
So I, that's about 40 years ago. I figure that's very biblical. I put on a pound a year, you know, like a day for a year principle. But I'm going to stop being biblical in that sense. That's about enough. Okay, so I think that's the last of the pictures. Yes, okay, so now we can actually get into it. Um, so uh, I read these words, would you like to travel and teach? I remember I was sitting in the Davenport Commission on Youth. That was in Davenport, Iowa. And uh, I had been a VISTA volunteer, and I was nearing the end of my stint there. And uh, VISTA, for those of you who uh, don't know what it is, it's called, it stands for Volunteers in Service to America. It's kind of like the domestic version of the Peace Corps. So you do some kind of service, but uh, here you stay in the United States. And uh, I had uh, joined, I was looking for an adventure, looking to travel. And I was, uh, grew up in Chicago. Uh, and I had this idea that I wanted to be down south. I wanted to be some, somewhere else, a different region of the country. I ended up in Davenport, Iowa. So I was pretty disappointed that I ended up, I kind of defeated the purpose of why I joined. But um, anyway, I, I ended up in Davenport, Iowa. That's not Davenport, by the way. <laughs> it didn't look like that. Uh, I had a good experience there um, and uh, met a, a lot of good people. And that's, I'm not going to go into the stories there. There's a whole bunch of stories I could tell you about Davenport, Iowa. But... Uh, nearing the end, I was still looking for something to do, and they sent out these newsletters to the uh, VISTA volunteers, and they had want ads in there, and that's where I saw this ad, would you like to travel and teach? And so I was still interested in traveling and you know, seeing different parts of the country, so I inquired about it and uh, eventually went to uh, the interview. So I'm living in Davenport, and the interview is taking place at this school I'd never heard of, it's called Broadview Academy. It's affiliated with a church I never heard of, the Seventh-day Adventist Church, and it's in a town I never heard of, La Fox, Illinois. I grew up in Chicago, never heard of La Fox. Um, so anyway, I drive in, and I end up doing a two-day interview, and there is where I met Warren Johnson. Warren Johnson, that uh, was his company, and Warren Johnson was quite a, quite a character, and I, I'm going to tell a couple of funny stories about him, but actually, he, was, he really had a big influence on me. I really kind of admired Warren. He, he had this adventurous spirit, this sense of humor, and this uh, can-do attitude that you can you know, do anything. And as a young person, that really influenced me a lot. So uh, I, I just wanted to let you know that I actually really liked working for Warren, but he was a, quite an unusual guy. So um, <clears throat> I drive in and have this interview at Broadview Academy. One of the things I remember is there was a young girl. We were pitching this course to uh, um, the sophomore class, I think it was. And they had a, a policy or a habit of having a prayer, having one of the kids pray for the class. And I remember this young girl getting up and praying. And I'd never really heard anybody pray like that before. I grew up as a Catholic, and all our prayers were kind of uh, canned prayers. Uh, but she had this very uh, sincere prayer, and I, was, I remember being impressed with her. Um, so I'm glad they did that. Now, Warren, Warren Johnson, he, uh, he was a salesman. Okay, he worked for a reading and study skills company, and he decided to venture off on his own and start his own company, which is great, except Warren had no educational background. He had no materials for the course. <laughs> um, and, uh, you know, I mean, just the, he was a salesman, so he would get up there and razzle-dazzle the kids. He would tell them stories and, you know, jokes, and the kids loved him. But that's not really something that you could have other people teach, right, unless you're like Warren Johnson. So I was looking at the materials, and I'm kind of thinking, I don't know. I don't know if I should really join this company or not, but the, the lure of the travel and the adventure and so forth, I said, ah, why not? I'm gonna, I'll, I'll go ahead and do it. So, so I joined, and um, 
And I ended up at about seven schools in six different states. Uh, Broadview Academy here, uh, Delphine Academy, those you remember in Michigan, uh, Ark Adventist Academy down in Arkansas, um, where else today? Uh, Catholic School outside of Detroit, um, Forest Lake Academy in Florida, another Catholic school in Memphis or uh, Nashville, Tennessee, and then Bath Memorial in Mississippi. Uh, interesting, you know, a lot of interesting stories. I'm not going to go into all of them, but in between that, um, between I think it was between Thanksgiving of 1977 and Christmas, during the, that time we weren't really teaching. So three of us, Warren, another teacher, Bruce, and myself, got in the car. Warren's, um, uh, what was it? I can't remember the car now. <laughs> anyway, it was like a, a big car, and we traveled across the country trying to sell this course at different schools. And just to give you an idea, um, it was Bruce, Warren, and I. We were sitting in front of a principal, and I think this was in Maryland. And we were talking back and forth, and the principal finally looks at Warren and says, Warren, how many teachers do you have? And Warren Johnson, great, great answer. He says, uh, well, Mr. So-and-so, I project by the end of the year we're going to have 10 teachers. And he didn't ask any more questions. Little did the guy know that the three of us, the entire company, was sitting in front of him. So you, you got to love Warren. There's, there's one more little uh, Warrenism that I, I got to tell you about. Um, this, was, uh, this was when we were traveling and going to those hotels. He would get into a hotel, go into a hotel room, and the first thing that he would do, first thing he would do is open up the phone book, turn to the pages where all the schools were listed, and rip them out. And Bruce and I were asking, why do you do that? Why don't you just copy the names down? Why ruin a good phone book? Warren's, Warren's answer was, well, in case a salesman from a rival company comes, I don't want him to see the schools. And we're thinking, that makes no sense. Okay, the chances of somebody going into the exact same hotel room, and what kind of, what kind of uh, salesman would just walk out if he didn't see it all that way? Like, this is the only phone book in the hotel. But that was Warren, and Bruce and I and many other teachers had many laughs. I, I, I tell you, sometimes it was frustrating teaching. I would go over to, like, remember one time going to Bruce's house, and this is when I was in Detroit, and that's where he lived. And we were just, one Friday night, we were just laughing over all the different Warrenisms. <laughs> so during, the, um, during some of our travels with Warren, we'd have some interesting uh, discussions. Warren was a Baptist, and like I said, I grew up as a Catholic. Um, and we talk about some of these concepts, and I got to admit to you that uh, both Baptists and Adventists seem kind of weird to me. Uh, there were some weird things about you know, both. And I remember Warren telling me, he said, Joe, he said, salvation is a legal contract with you and God. And once you're born again, you can't be unborn. And I was thinking, okay, that makes sense, but I don't know, something about this I, I didn't like. I didn't like the idea that it was a legal contract. That sounds kind of cold and informal to, or formal to me. But, you know, that's what, that's what he believed. So it kind of piqued my interest in some of these things. Warren, I think it was, that gave me a copy of a book called Late Great Planet Earth. And I don't know if you, some, some of you remember that. I think Hal Lindsey is still around. He's the author. And I was reading that book, and later you're going to find that I was also reading another book called The Great Controversy and kind of comparing them. And it was interesting to compare the two. So what was it that interested me, though, in, in the Adventists and the teachings and so forth? Um, and I think this might be good insight, because I came from a totally different background. Some of you may have been brought up in the church uh, or had been you know, members a long time. So what is it that attracts people to this church, at least what, what attracted me? So I found in my travels and studies and talking to the students and some of the teachers there, there were four 
questions that were answered for me that I didn't even know I had. And um, can we try to move this ahead a little bit here? There we go. Whoops. I went a little too far. <laughs> Thank you. All right. Luckily, there's not too many slides here. Um, these were the four questions. What is God like? How important is liberty of conscience? Why was sin permitted? How does it all end? So um, in, in learning about these things, there was quite a paradigm shift in my mind. Uh, growing up with a different set of beliefs, and there's a lot of voices that we hear in our heads. And I believe that a correct understanding of these four concepts helped me, it uh, corrected my understanding of the Bibles, took off some of those false filters and impressions that I had. So the uh, first book that was given me, I was at a school, I think this was down at Ozark Academy, and I made friends with one of the teachers there, his name was Steve Morrow. Uh, I don't know if some of you know the Morrows, they were evidently, there's quite, they were uh, known in Michigan. But he was a teacher down in uh, Ozark Academy, and this was probably the spring of 1977. And uh, Steve and I would get together. He was about a year older than me. And so we would do things together. We would uh, take the kids out on Saturdays to different things. And, and in Arkansas, in, in, at that time of the year, it's very warm. And so we would uh, spend a lot of time outside. Uh, I remember we had a party with some of the other young teachers. I think it was an ice cream party or something like that. We would talk about different things. We'd talk about evolution and the Bible and different things. And I, was, I believe it was him who gave me the desire of ages. So we can go ahead to the next. Thank you. <laughs> Desire of Ages by Ellen White. And uh, so I started reading the book. And I got to the first chapter, started with the first chapter, and uh, it's entitled God With Us. And there were eight points that I kind of got out of this. Again, remember, I wasn't really, wasn't purposely looking, just kind of read it. I thought, okay, this is interesting. So the first one, first concept in that chapter is God is revealed to us. So it, it says, by coming to dwell with us, Jesus was to reveal God both to men and angels. He was the word of God, God's thought made audible. And I thought, well, that's interesting. I knew that Jesus came, um, but I never really thought about him representing the Father, telling us what the Father is like. So that was kind of a new concept to me. Uh, and revealing to both men and angels. Uh, and I found that interesting. I thought, angels, what do they need revealing? I mean, they were living with God for, you know, how long? Eons of times. And why would they need any revealing about God? So I thought that was kind of an interesting concept. Um, it talks about self-renouncing love. What, is, what is, was Jesus revealing to us about God the Father? Self-renouncing love. It said, uh, both the redeemed and the unfallen beings will find in the cross of Christ their science and their song. The law of self-renouncing love is the law of life. It's the law that seeks not her own. It manifests the character of God who dwells in approachable light. And another, just another concept that was interesting to me. Uh, he dwells in unapproachable light. Okay, I can understand that. But this self-renouncing love. Again, I never really thought about God as being self-renouncing. I mean, we praise God. He's powerful. Uh, you know, as a young boy, I was taught, you really didn't question God. I mean, he was just, he was God. And, you know, um, but the fact that, you know, was he self-renouncing? Interesting. And that's the law of life. Um, self-seeking. Where did self-seeking come from? Um, again, I thought that was kind of natural. We just kind of watch out for ourselves. But self-seeking uh, originated in heaven. It says, in heaven itself, this law was broken, this law of self-renouncing love. Uh, Lucifer, the covering cherub, did desire to be first in heaven. 
Uh, and it goes on to say, therefore, he misrepresented God. With his own evil characteristics, uh, characteristics he sought to invest a loving creator. And this is how he deceived angels, and this is how he deceived men. And now, as it says, the night of woe settled upon this world. The use of force. Okay, God is powerful. And again, I always thought, I mean, God could really do anything he wants to do. He's powerful. Um, but this book goes on to explain a little different side of it. It says, Earth was dark with the misapprehension of God. Satan's deceptive power needed to be broken, but this could not be done by force. The exercise of force is contrary to the principles of God's government. He desires only the service of love, and love cannot be commanded. It cannot be won by force or authority. Only love can awaken love. Wow, that's quite a concept. Um, and not only that, this was actually foundational to God's government. Um, as she goes on to say, the plan of redemption is not an afterthought. It was the unfolding of principles that from eternal ages have been the foundation of God's throne. This was always there, always part of him. He didn't need to express it in the way he did on the cross. But uh, once it did, it came out, this was always there. It also talked about uh, Christ's his divinity was veiled. We, we read that many times, uh, divinity flashed through humanity, that concept. But she goes on to say that if he, had the, if he showed us the glory that he had prior to coming into this world, we would have been destroyed. But because he loved us and he wanted to have a relationship with us, that glory was shrouded. And when you think about that being destroyed, we think, again, filters, what's, what's going on in our mind, that God is angry, but that's not the case. It's not the case. It's just his glory. We were not, at that point in time, able to behold it. One of the things I really appreciate in, in how Jesus interacted with people is with, uh, for instance, Martha and Mary. And, and I love their interactions. He allowed them to be frustrated with him. Remember how Martha was frustrated with him? That You've got to tell Mary to help me. I'm, you know, I'm working here, and she's just sitting there. Tell her to get off her butt and help me. And uh, I love the way he dealt with it. it was, he was very um, gentle in his, his response to her. Firm, but gentle. Uh, same with Mary when she was, uh, Lord, if you'd been here, my brother, brother wouldn't have died. But that kind of back and forth, think about it. He was the creator, and he allowed and even wanted that kind of dialogue with people. I want you to be comfortable with me. I want you to be, if you're frustrated, I want you to tell me you're frustrated. He wants that kind of relationship uh, with us. That's why his glory was veiled. We couldn't talk to him like that, and, you know, but this was God himself. Uh, more than recovery, we're, we're told that in coming to, uh, by his life and death, uh, Christ had achieved more than just a recovery from sin. In taking our nature, the Savior has bound himself to humanity by a tie that is never to be broken. Eternal for eternal agency is linked with us. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son. He didn't lend him to us, he gave him to us. And I had never thought of that. You know, I knew he went back to heaven, uh, but I thought, well, who knows? Who knows what happened? You know, we went back to his previous form, whatever. But that's not what uh, Ellen White says here. Um, and he is uh, to retain this humanity for eternity. Now, that was quite a concept for me. Wow, God really did give up a lot. Um, finally, she talks about the earth being God's new home. Again, I never knew that, never thought about that, but the new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven to earth, and this is where God's going to live. The one place that was in rebellion is now 
completely changed, and this is where he's actually going to live. And she ends the chapter with saying, God is with us for eternity. He's with us. And this was just the first chapter. There's 84 more chapters, which we're not going to go into, but I was really hooked. I mean, there were concepts here about God that I had never really thought of, never heard of. Um, really something. A few months later, this was probably, like I said, I don't know, sometime, that was probably the spring of 77. Anyway, several months later, at some point later, I was in, I believe it was Forest Lake Academy. That was a school down in Florida. And I was walking down the hall, and this shy girl comes up to me. She's probably a sophomore or something, and she hands me a book and runs away. <laughs> I, I barely had time to thank her. And I looked down at the cover of the book, and we can go ahead and do the next slide here. And it was The Great Controversy by the same author. I thought, well, this is kind of interesting. I, like that last book I read, Desire of Ages, let me read this book. And uh, remember I said there were four concepts that I learned. What is God like? Um, how important is liberty of conscience? Um, why was sin permitted and how does it all end? Well, this book helped answer those other three questions. So, <clears throat> and uh, I'm going to be quoting not only from that book, I'm just going to be pulling little parts out here and there, but just a little background. Um, when I was growing up, uh, there was, I understood in my mind there was a separation between the laity and the clergy, especially in the, in the Catholic Church, not only in the Catholic Church, other churches too. I mean, they, had, they were on a different level than us. They were a little holier, um, you asked them to bless you, you know what I mean? There was, a, there was this difference. And um, I needed to be uh, re-educated about that. Um, this book is talks about at least a chunk of it about the struggles that the reformers went through in um, trying to bring back uh, religious liberty. And one of the things that uh, I realize is that this combination of church and state and the uh, terrible things that could happen when they're a little too aligned with each other. Now, I was always familiar with this history. We learned about it in history books and so forth. We were taught about it, but not quite from this uh, perspective. So it was very eye-opening. So we're given examples here, which is evidence that very bad things happen when liberty of conscience is not tolerated. Uh, we see evidence as the Middle Ages came to the Reformation, um, how, how hard it was to break free from that. Uh, once li religious liberty is either given away or taken away, it's almost impossible to get it back. Um, it, it just seems like there's this lock on this power, and uh, we can see that even in nations today. There are nations um, that, you know, there's various religions that are supported by their states, and it's very tough to break away from that. Uh, there's not a lot of freedom for certain things in those, in those places. Um, and this is a story of how these reformers fought to get that back. It's estimated that between 50 million and 150 million people lost their lives due to this struggle. And not just from you know, being uh, uh, persecuted, just the wars and everything else that came. That, compare that to the, like the 5,500 to 6,500 people that were martyred during the early, you know, the Roman, uh, when the Romans were martyring the Christians. I mean, that number, um, that 50 million, whatever, and there's a lot of controversy about that, but we know it was a lot more. So once, once religious liberty is gone, very tough to get it back. So in this book, I'm reading different quotes. And again, I'm, we can't go into a lot of detail about it. But about John Wycliffe, uh, he taught that the Bible is a perfect revelation of God's will and that the Holy Spirit is its only interpreter. Every person is to study the teachings to learn the duty for themselves. So again, 
this concept of learning for yourself was kind of making its way into my head. Um, separation of church and state. The princes of Germany, to protect the liberty of conscience, is the, duty of the, uh, is the duty of the state, and this is the limit of its authorities in matters of religion. Every secular government that attempts to regulate or enforce religious observances by civil authority is sacrificing the princ uh, principle Christians struggled for. And then she carries it on to how this, this thinking of civil religious liberty uh, was in the minds of our forefathers who uh, framed our Constitution and our Declaration of Independence. She goes on to say uh, this whole idea of this uh, uh, is, uh, these truths are self-evident, that we do have the right to uh, pursuit of happiness and all that, that this, this civil, uh, civil and religious freedom is built into us by God. She also says that this is the secret recipe for our country. These two, these two principles, civil, religious freedom, are what gave us our uh, power and our prosperity. The use of force, we talk about God not using force. Satan is the opposite, he does use force. In fact, she says that uh, force is only found in Satan's government. And we see how he used that during the Middle Ages. We have a lot of evidence there. The civil and religious authorities, he was able to influence them to restrict our freedoms. Unfortunately, in the future, we know that those freedoms are gonna be lost again at some point in time. And uh, she says that the soon coming conflict, we will see the exemplified the prophet's words, the tr uh, dragon was wroth with the woman and went to make war with the remnant of her seed who keep the commandments of God and have the testimony of Jesus. This is just a small portion of this book, of course, but it was mind blowing to me to, to learn some of these concepts. And this idea of religious freedom should be carried into our personal lives also. No one has a right to tell you what to believe. Uh, friends, family, whatever. And this kind of had to be drilled into me too. And under, uh, I had to understand this concept that, you know, it's up to us to decide. God has given us reason, and he's given us a brain, and he wants us to think for ourselves and find out for ourselves, and that's very, very important. I didn't realize how, how critical that was. Um, it's called the law of liberty. And uh, really, when you think about it, God doesn't even force that either. If you think of the first four commandments, um, just between God and you. You should have no other gods before me. Um, shall not make any graven images. Don't take the name of the Lord, of the God, thy God in vain. And remember the Sabbath to keep it holy. Those four really should never be enforced by a government. They're only uh, between you and God. The last question, or one, uh, third question, I guess, is a very eye-opening question is where, why was sin permitted? Where, where did this evil come from? And again, I'd never really thought about it. It was there and you know, God is God and uh, he's telling us to be good. And, and um, this would kind of got behind the scenes a little bit. So the, the chapter is called uh, The Origin of Evil. It says, to many minds, the origin of sin and the reason for its existence are a sort, source of great perplexity. They see the works of evil with its terrible results of woe and desolation, and they question how all this can exist under the sovereignty of one who is infinite in wisdom and power and love. Here is a mystery of which they find no explanation. She goes on to explain that the law of love, self-announcing love, is the foundation of God's government. For the happiness of everyone, it depends on that. Uh, but this has to, and I love this, this, uh, this phrase, it has to spring from an intelligent appreciation of his character. An intelligent appreciation of his character. What does that tell you about how God wants to treat us? 
uh, doesn't force us. He lays out the evidence. Here's what I'm like. But you are free to decide whether you're going to worship me or not. Um, in, other, in, other, in this book, but there's another quote where she said, she, God does not expect um, stupid credulity. <laughs> in other words, uh, just a blind faith. There's no place for blind faith here. And again, this was a, a different concept for me, kind of an eye-opening concert, concept. But because he does grant us this freedom, there was someone in heaven who perverted it, and that was Lucifer. And again, this was you know, kind of eye-opening to me. And you know, we, we have these quotes from Ezekiel and Isaiah, and I remember it's Isaiah, I think Isaiah 14 and Ezekiel 28. So just think of 14 times 2, uh, 28. So both of those, in Ezekiel it says, you were the anointed um, cherub who covers, you were perfect in your ways, that from the day you were created till iniquity was found in you. And what was that iniquity? It was me first. Little by little, Lucifer came to indulge a desire for self-exaltation. And this is from Isaiah. For you said in your heart, I will ascend into heaven, I will exalt my throne above the stars of God, I will be like the Most High. Wow. How could anybody want to be like, how, how could anybody think they could be like the Most High? But um, understanding how God allowed him the freedom to do that, to um, try to convince him otherwise, but it goes on to say that the rebellion spread. Leaving the immediate presence of God, Lucifer diffused the spirit of discontent among the angels, claiming not self-exaltation, but that he was trying to secure the liberty for everyone. Uh, I'm going to bring you into a higher state of existence. And it's very interesting. If you um, look at the book of Revelation in, the, in the chapter 12, I believe, where it talks about the war in heaven, that word for war is actually polemos, which is where we get polemic, which is a debate. Because I always thought when I was younger, reading about this war in heaven, I'm thinking, this war should have been over before it started, right? I mean, come on, we got God? Who's fighting God? I mean, he could just say, you're gone. Um, but that wasn't the issue. It wasn't God's power or his strength that was in question. It was his character. And remember, God can't force us to accept. He has to just lay out the evidence. He gives us the freedom to choose. So it says that God bore along with Lucifer, infinite wisdom uh, and love in that he, he devised many ways to try to get Lucifer back. Uh, discontent was not known in heaven before. Lucifer himself did not first see where he was drifting. So, he, so Lucifer is doing all this, he used the power of deception. Remember in, in Matthew 24 we're told several times, don't be deceived. Deception is a very powerful tool. That's how uh, Adam and Eve fell. That's how the angels fell. Deception. Um, it said that uh, so clothed, uh, Satan so closed, uh, he'd been so highly honored, and his acts were so clothed with mystery that it was difficult to disclose to the angels the true nature of his work. Until fully developed, sin would not appear to be the evil thing it was. Holy beings had no conception of its nature or malignity. God knew, but they didn't know. So evidence was needed. So it says that even when it was decided that Satan could no longer remain in heaven, infinite wisdom did not destroy him. Since the service of love can be acceptable, is only acceptable to God, um, he had to, uh, for the good of the entire universe, uh, through ceaseless ages, allow this whole thing to work out. Finally, at the end, when we see the results of everything, we see how it all ends. It says the whole universe... Um, I'm sorry, it says, uh, in the end, the whole universe will have become, um, 
will have become witnesses to the nature and results of sin, and its utter extermination, which in the beginning would have brought fear to angels and dishonor God, will now vindicate his love. A tested and proved creation will never again turn from allegiance to him. Wow, those were powerful points that I was picking up on. So uh, the, last, the last question, how will it all end? What happens to the wicked? Again, I grew up thinking that hell lasts forever, right? You're good, you go to heaven. You're bad, you go to hell. And there you burn forever. So this whole idea of what actually happens to the wicked was not only eye-opening, it's one of those things where I was reading it, reading about it and saying, well, I hope this is really true. Because this is, this is so much different than what I thought about God. And there were four passages. Again, we could have a whole study on this. We're not going to go into it a lot. But uh, Malachi 4.1, For behold, the day is coming, burning like an oven, and all the proud, yea, all who do wickedly will be stubble. Uh, and the day shall burn them up, leave them, leave, leaving them neither root nor branch. Satan the root, all his followers branches. Ezekiel 28, it says, I destroyed you, O covering cherub, from the midst of the fiery stones. Therefore I brought fire from the midst of you. It devoured you. So notice where this fire is coming, from within, from within him. Psalm 27 says that, yet, for yet a little while, and the wicked shall be no more. Indeed, you will look carefully for his place, but it shall be no more. And Obadiah 16, and they shall be as though they had never been. So this whole resolution was, was new, but boy, it, it just seemed right. There's something that just fit about the whole thing. If you read about the lake of fire in Revelation 19 and 20, by the way, that, that particular reference to the lake of fire, that is not a literal fire, and you can tell that because there are living and non-living things that are thrown in that fire. Two of them, the beast or the, um, yeah, beast and the false prophet, are thrown in before the thousand years, if you read in Revelation 19. Where does this fire exist? This is, this is prior to the thousand years. They're thrown in there, the devil, um, angels, anybody that follows him, uh, and then death and Hades are thrown into that lake of fire. Um, these are non-living things. If you go back, you look at what that lake of fire stands for, it says this is the second death. Just substitute, these things no longer exist. For every one of those things where it's thrown in the lake of fire, and it'll open your eyes about that. So the beast and the false prophet no longer exist prior to the thousand years. Why? Because they were the, remember the, the civil and religious authorities that are used to persecute people? That's how Satan uses to, uh, those are the powers he uses to deceive on earth. After the thousand years, he doesn't use them anymore. He, it says he deceives people directly. He doesn't use um, those items anymore. He, he directly deceives them. So they're gone forever. And then finally, he's gone forever. Uh, death and Hades are gone forever. And in the next chapter, you see that uh, it says sin is no more, or uh, death is no more, pain is no more. That's what that means. It's, it's amazing when you just let the Bible interpret itself and uh, understand what the keys are, that, uh, how uh, insightful these things are. It goes on to say this is not an ar arbitrary act on the part of God. The rejectors uh, reap what they have sown. God is the fountain of life. Anyone who separates himself from God cuts himself off they that love me, or they that hate me, love death. That's from Proverbs 8:36. Uh, God gives people uh, a chance, gives them a chance to develop their characters. By a life of rebellion, Satan and all who unite with them place themselves so out of harmony with God that his very presence to them is a consuming fire. The glory of him who is love will destroy them. So notice that the destruction comes from God's glory, not from his anger. And the destruction comes from within. 
Satan himself will see that this is voluntary on his part. Remember it says that all, knee will, all knees will bow before him? That's not a forced submission. It's not God saying you will bow. Everyone just agrees. This is right. They're given all this information, yeah. This is actually an act of love on God's part. <clears throat> we tend to separate God's love and justice. We say God is love, but he is just too. But that is actually not true. God is always love, but he's always just. Every one of his acts exhibit both. Justice means to do the right thing. Even the destruction of the wicked at the end is love, an act of love. We're actually told that. He said God loves his neighbor, and he, he tells us to do that. He does the same thing. This is an act of love because they, they cut themselves off. They would destroy themselves if they're allowed to live. If you look in Revelation, it says uh, <clears throat> there was no, no place was found for them. It's like God was looking. Where could, I, where could I put these people? There's no place. No place in my universe. No room for this. The new earth. So what happens to those that trust God? <clears throat> Their immor uh, immortal minds will contemplate the mysteries of redeeming love. Every faculty will be developed. Every capacity capacity increased. The grandest um, enterprises may be carried forward, the loftiest aspirations reached, the highest ambitions realized, and still there will be arise new heights to surmount, new wonders to admire, new truths to comprehend, fresh objects to call forth the powers of mind and soul and body. And here's where the gift of time comes in. We think of time as a restriction that we don't see the future, we don't know. Actually, time was created for us, for finite beings, to approach the infinite God. He gave us this dimension, if you will, to live in, to always approach him, but never reach him. It's the best thing, actually, he could have done for us. It says, as the years of eternity, and the years of eternity, as they roll, will bring richer and still more glorious revelations of God and of Christ. As knowledge is progressive, so will love, reverence, and happiness increase. So just think about that. Every moment is going to be better than the last moment. Every day better than the last day. Every year better than the last year. I mean, it will never end. Everything's just going to get better and better and better. The great controversy is ended. Sin and sinners are no more. The entire universe is clean. I love that. The entire universe is clean. One pulse of harmony and gladness beats throughout vast creation. From the minutest atom to the greatest world, uh, all things animate and in, inanimate in, in their unshadowed beauty and perfect joy declare that God is love. And that's how the book ends. And I thought, wow, there's really something here. Um, and it's not just those books themselves. It actually points, all these things point back to the Bible. But, you know, when we read the Bible, we read it with a lot of filters. And we don't see a lot of these things because we just think a different way. And in and, and thinking about these things, these four questions I talked about, your mind is directed in a different way. And when you're reading the scriptures, you see all these things are there. These are all in the Bible. It's just a matter of actually seeing them. So I learned two things about this. Jesus said, I am the only way to the Father, right? You don't, uh, the only way to get to the Father is through me, which is true. But I also learned there are many ways to Jesus. One way to God, many ways to Jesus. We all have different needs. God meets us where we are. In my particular situation, um, I, I guess I was searching. I didn't know I was searching, but I must have been searching for some of these things, and I found it this way. There are people who come in totally different ways. There are people who feel you know, very guilty about things that they've done, uh, and they need Jesus to heal them. There are people that, um, whatever, they have habits they need to break, and they need Jesus to help them break those habits. I mean, whatever you need, God will, will find a solution to that. So that was one of the things I learned. Uh, the other is what a cohesive theology we have as a church. I, 
I can't emphasize that as much, that all these things just fit together. They make perfect sense. They're in the Bible. Um, these, these themes that we've that started uh, are expansive. They're not static. It's not like, okay, we believe these set of beliefs and that's it. I've seen people take these concepts that we have in our church and just take them to places that I didn't realize. And you, you start listening to all these different things, you realize that this is a foundation that we can build on. After all, didn't it just say that we're going to be learning through eternity? So why would God stop us you know, at a certain point in history and say, well, there's really nothing else to learn? You know, now, it doesn't contradict any of this. None of this should, should contradict the scriptures or any of this, but you, you grow on it, you expand with it. And uh, that's what I found, that this is quite a framework. So what is God like? How important is liberty of conscience? Why was sin permitted? And how does it all end? There's actually one more uh, question that we need to ask ourselves is, what do we do? So that's the question that I ask myself. Okay, what do you do with all this? Okay, we learn that God is trustworthy. He's not like I thought he was. Uh, when you believe in God, that's trusting. Believe and trust mean the same thing. You, you, you have to act on that in some way. And so on, next slide. Next slide. <laughs> there we go. On December 2nd, 1978, I was baptized right in this church here. This, was, this is uh, Pastor John Baldwin. I don't know how, how many of you remember John Baldwin. Um, he was our pastor back then. He actually wasn't planning to be our pastor for very long. He was actually attending University of Chicago. But he was here when I first started coming. And I studied a little bit with him, with, little bit with him and I was baptized. Bunch of kids from the church. I don't remember, but this, you probably can't see too well, but lower left, that's Kara Newton. <laughs> that's daughter and sister over there, and she always tells me, I remember how kind you were to me on, on that day when, when I was, we were baptized, so um, I'm glad I was. <laughs> I didn't quite remember that, but you know, I said, well, I'm glad I was, not mean to you. Um, so I entitled this An Unexpected Journey, but you know, this was not the end of the journey. This was just the beginning, and this is like 40-some years ago. Uh, it, 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 it's been a wild ride ever since then, but I don't regret one minute of it, and it, it's not ending now. It's going to continue for an eternity, and um, so I'm just I'm just happy for what happened. I invite you to to join that journey with me if you haven't already. So we will we will end the service now with the song or the hymn, "The Church Has One Foundation," three forty-eight. Thank you very much. <laughs>